Morning, everybody. How are you? Uh, my name is David Soren. I am the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. We are back in our Life of Elijah series this morning. We're excited about that. Hey, if it's your very first time here this morning, we are so pumped that you're here. I just want to kind of get you up to speed as we're kind of in the middle of a, a biblical teaching series about Elijah the prophet. Kind of just show you where we are in history, where we are in the Bible. So Elijah was this man who lived about 850 years or so B.C., before Jesus, and he lived in Israel. And the main thing that God wanted him to do was to confront the leaders of Israel about how they were leading the people into idolatry. The people were literally worshiping empty statues. They weren't God, and he was trying to bring the people back to God. Well, the leaders didn't like Elijah for that, and so they threatened his life, and he had to escape from them. And out of that, Elijah falls into this deep state of depression. We spent two weeks this summer talking about depression and how God ministered to Elijah in his depression and how he eventually lifted him out of that depression. And one of the ways he did that was by having Elijah go do, actually get up and go do some things. And one of the things that Elijah was supposed to do was to go find a servant who would eventually become his successor. And that was a man by the name of Elisha. Now, the names are really similar. You have Elijah, and his successor is going to be Elisha. So I'm just going to over-enunciate all morning long <laughs> so you can tell the difference between the two. And we're going to join the passage there. So everybody grab a Bible. That's what we do here. So this Bible's under the chair if you need one. Uh, we're going to be on page 245. If you brought your own Bible, I know many of you do that, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19. Um, and you can always use the Renovation Church app as well. So just three verses today, but they are awesome. Uh, so if you're trying to find it on page 245, just look for uh, chapter 19. That's the big number 19. And then we're actually going to be on verse 19 this morning. So you just look for the small number 19 as well. And that's where we are. Okay. Here's what it says. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He, that's Elisha, was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat, his oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. Okay, so our friend Elijah, whom we've kind of been studying all summer, just going kind of verse by verse through the scriptures, finds his eventual successor, a man named Elisha. Now, as soon as Elijah sees Elisha, he puts his cloak on him, signaling that he's going to be a successor. Now, this is not how we appoint successors in 21st century. It's not like the CEO of Target's coming around the next guy with his cloak on him, right? But this is what they did in the ancient Near East many, many, many years ago. And Elisha's cloak, in a sense, was a symbol of his prophetic authority, kind of as the lead prophet of Israel and a symbol of his calling. Now, there's a really key thing that you have to understand if this passage is going to come alive to you, if it's going to make sense to you. And what I want you to understand this morning is just how incredibly rich Elisha was. So look at the passage. How many oxen does he have? 
12 yoke of oxen. So that's 12 pairs. Elisha has 24 oxen. Can you imagine how many oxen the average person had 850 years before Jesus? Zero, most of them, right? Maybe you had one or a yoke. You had two. Elisha has 24. He was the wealthy, wealthy landowner of that region. And think of what he's being called to now, right? For those of you who've been studying Elijah with us this summer, is this a life of luxury that Elijah's living? No way, right? I mean, he's down by the brook. He's having to take food from ravens. He's always on the run from murderous tyrants. He's experiencing just extreme ups and downs of being a prophet. Really different life than being a wealthy landowner, right? Right now, Elisha is rich, right? He's in charge. He's comfortable. He essentially has everything the world could offer him at this point. But God is calling him to a life of poverty, a life of danger, but also a life of incredible thrills, excitement, and spiritual fulfillment and rewards. It reminds me a little bit of uh, one of my favorite pastors of history is quickly becoming um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, maybe second in my mind to Charles Spurgeon. Nobody, nobody will probably ever be that number one, but besides the great Charles Spurgeon. But Lloyd-Jones, if you've never heard of him, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a famous pastor in London in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. Absolutely brilliant man. But before he was a pastor, he went to medical school to be a medical doctor. And he, in fact, was so gifted and so smart that in his residency, he apprenticed under the most famous doctor in all of England, a man who was the personal doctor to the king of England. So at that time, everybody thought that this man, Martin Lloyd-Jones, was the next big thing in the medical field in England. And then, right towards the end of his residency, God calls Martin Lloyd-Jones to be a pastor. So at the very end of his residency, he quits medical school, and he moves to this impoverished city, and he starts pastoring this really tiny church. And people in England lost their minds about it. Just lost their minds. And he'd walk on the street and people would come up to him and say, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? Why would you do that? But Lloyd-Jones said that what the Lord called him to do was to preach and he could do nothing else. And I think one of the quintessential questions for you this morning is what is God calling you to do? And for some of you, that could be really big picture. What's the big thing he's calling you to? At least for all of you, at least if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there are little things even you can answer this question. What has the Holy Spirit been prompting you to do lately? Are you doing it? Are you following? And if not, why not? I mean, look at Elisha. Elisha had a pretty great life, right? But God was calling him to something greater. In fact, if you're looking for something interesting to read in the Bible, read the book of, we're in 1 Kings right now, read the book of 2 Kings. Much of the book of 2 Kings, especially the first half, is about the life of Elisha. And he's had a fascinating life. His life is amazing. You know, I find many Christians in America are missing out on what God has for them because they've contented themselves with the conveniences of the world instead. And then 
when the Holy Spirit kind of gets in their minds and their hearts, maybe it's at a worship service or you're reading the Bible on your own and the Holy Spirit is just prompting you again to do something. We don't. We refuse because we just can't seem to divorce ourselves from the comforts of modern life or maybe just the comforts of not obeying. It's always more comfortable than not obey in so many ways. Let me give you an example of this. Do you know who Jim Elliott was? Uh, if, you ever heard, if you've never heard the name Jim Elliott before, Jim Elliott uh, was a famous missionary to an unreached people group in Ecuador, uh, kind of in the 1950s. I spent a number of years uh, ministering to remote tribes in the kind of eastern part of Ecuador, sort of right where the Amazon rainforest begins. But as he was ministering in the rainforest, his heart began to long to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus, even deeper into the jungle to a completely unreached tribe that had never heard absolutely anything about Jesus. The problem was they were an extremely violent tribe. But Elliot takes the risk anyway, along with four other missionaries. They make contact at first, but eventually they're killed. They're martyred by the people in the jungle. Now, the story doesn't end there. I won't give it all away. In fact, I want to recommend a book to you. I'm just reading, reading myself. It's fantastic. It's actually written by Jim Elliott's widow, uh, Elizabeth Elliott. It's called Through Gates of Splendor. And it's just the story of what happens. A really powerful stuff. But Jim Elliott, who was killed for his faith, once wrote this. It's a very famous phrase of his. And I, I will put it up on the screen for you. Here's what he said. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, the things of this world, Right? to gain that which he cannot lose. And that's what you see in Elisha, right? It's like, sure, it looks like he's getting rid of a ton, right? His wealth, his business, his comfortable old life, but he's not a fool because what he's gaining is so much more. So what is God calling you to? Maybe he is calling you to take the gospel overseas. Maybe he's calling you into ministry. And maybe he's not calling you to any full-time vocational ministry, but I guarantee God is prompting you to do something, and I would bet for almost every one of you in this room, it's probably scary. That's just kind of how the Holy Spirit works. Maybe he's been prompting you and your spouse lately about adoption or foster care, and that just feels kind of scary. Maybe he's just been bugging you lately about Starting a Bible study at work. It's throwing feelers out there to people who maybe don't even know Christ. And that feels pretty scary. Maybe he's calling you to move or to change jobs. Maybe he's just calling you to use your gifts again. For, for a lot of us, maybe he's just been prompting us lately to let go of a sin, a particular sin that we just keep holding on to, but we're just not let going, letting go of. I don't know exactly what it is in your life, but I guarantee you he's prompting you, he's calling you to something. But a lot of us, we just don't obey because we don't want to let go of what we currently have. You know, I read a lot from uh, Pastor J.D. Greer on this topic. I'm really indebted to his thinking on this, on this next point. But Greer writes that Christians, if we're actually going to follow the call of God, we first need a Copernican revolution in our own spiritual lives. Do you remember the astronomer Copernicus from middle school? Seventh grade, science, you guys were so cool in seventh grade. You remember that, you remember that at least, right? Right? 
If you don't remember Copernicus, I'll, I'll do a quick refresher for you. You know, before Copernicus, remember everybody thought that the earth was the center of the solar system and that the sun and the planets and everything revolved around the earth. Copernicus comes along and he figures out, no, <laughs> whoops, sorry guys, actually the sun is the center of the universe and the earth and the planets all revolve around the sun and they repaid him by calling him a heretic and all that kind of stuff, right? Well, here's the thing. I think that Christians need a Copernican revolution if we're going to come to terms with who God really is. Because the vast majority of Christians in America live as if their needs, their desires, their feelings, their hopes, their dreams come first. And then if God can aid them in accomplishing their dreams and hopes, well, that's great. Thank you, Lord. But that's how we live. But when you truly study scripture and you truly understand Christianity, it becomes apparent to you and you will realize that no, the sun, that's S-O-N, is the center of your universe. And everything else is to revolve around the son of God and his call on your life. And we need a Copernican revolution, both in how we interact with the church in America, and I would say, most importantly, how we interact with Jesus on a daily basis. Let me just spend a couple minutes even talking about the church. We're talking about serving some this month in August at church. I think Christians in America in the 21st century, in part because we just live in a consumeristic society, that's our culture, I think we are so confused on this. We think that church is a place where we come to get fed. Right? We sort of fill our spiritual stomachs and then we, we head out. But listen, we are here this morning to worship God, right? We are here to learn. I hope you learn a lot about God. We're here to encounter God, but we're also here to serve God and to serve each other. And there are so many of you, uh, let me just give a note here to so many of you are new. I mean, there were, there's maybe 150 of you that are new just within the last few months. If, you, if you're one of those people and you're new around here, if you are looking for a church where you can kind of just kick back for the next couple of years, just kind of come in on Sundays and consume some spiritual content, I promise you this is not that church. If that's what you're looking for, you're actually going to feel uncomfortable here. I'll, I'll spare you the heartache from a few months from now, right now. We call ourselves sometimes here the anti-consumerism church. We often say that Renovation Church is not a cruise ship. If you are looking for a cruise ship church, they are certainly out there, but this is not it. We are not a cruise ship, we are a rowboat. And what we want from you is to pick up an oar so you can change the world with us. That is your calling as a disciple of Christ. Not to be a spiritual vacuum, but to use the gifts that God has given you to bring the gospel to change the world. That's the high calling God has on your life. And it starts in the really, really simple things. So one of the ways that we really simplify it is our hope is that every single person, 100% of people who call Renovation Church their home. So like if you were in a conversation and people said, where are you going to church? And you said, I go to Renovation Church. If Renovation Church is your home church, our hope is that 100% of those people find a place to serve here on a Sunday morning so that we're not coming and just consuming Because if we're truly imitators of Jesus, you can't be a consumer, right? 
We follow Jesus who set an example for us by serving others, by washing feet. It's like, how, how are we doing this in America right now? That we sort of change church into this idea that we come on Sundays, we let the Lord wash our feet. And we come again the next Sunday, let the Lord wash our feet. But we are to serve. And we want you to serve with us, to join in what God's doing here. Every week, people are spiritually built up. Almost every week, we see someone make a first-time decision to follow Jesus Christ. We want you to use your gifts again. You probably saw when you came in today, on your chair, there was a piece of paper. You go ahead and look at that. There was a, descriptions of all the different ways that you can serve here and a little card that you can fill out. What I want you to do is sometime today, if you're not serving and this is your home and you're ready to do this if you've kind of been waiting for like okay we've been coming here for a couple months we're sort of waiting for that moment to take the next step this is this is that moment to just fill that out and then your way out to just drop that in the box we need a copernican revolution in how we look at church again and most importantly we just need it in our daily lives but let me tell you something most of us we won't have that copernican revolution where we put the sun as the center We won't have it in our daily walk with Christ until we burn the plows. Wasn't that the most astounding part of this passage? Let me read verse 21 again. It says, So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. I mean, it's 24 of them. It'd be like giving away or like burning 24 cars or something. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate, all the people of the town. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. So think about this. This extremely wealthy man who had everything the world could offer, he hears the call of God on his life and then he goes back and he basically burns his business to the ground so that he could follow the calling that God had on his particular life. (laughs) You know, uh, one of the Bible study techniques that we teach in our Mining God's Word class in Renovation U. How many of you are in Mining God's Word this summer? How many of you have ever taken Mining God's Word before? They'll look at you all. All right. Okay. One of the techniques that we teach in Mining God's Word is when you study a passage, you want to naturally ask questions of the passage. It helps you dive into more of what the scriptures are teaching. Well, one of the questions I had when I was studying this passage is, why did Elijah burn it all down? Like, why couldn't he had 24 oxen, he had this farm, why couldn't he have just had someone else steward it and manage it? Why couldn't he have just given it to a friend? I feel like that's a good question, right? Right, it is a good question. But here's here's what I was thinking as I was just praying on it and studying it and just seeing what other people have said about it. It just occurred to me that Elijah is afraid that if he keeps his business going, he just has a friend to manage it while he's gone, Elisha is afraid that he would just go back to it when God's call got hard, and it would get hard. Author and pastor Mark Batterson says it this way about this passage. He says, nine times out of 10, failure is resorting to plan B when plan A gets too risky, too costly, or too difficult. That's why most people are living their plan B. They didn't burn the plow. Plan A people don't have a plan B. It's plan A or bust. They would rather crash and burn going after what God has told them than succeed at anything else. 
If you're here and you're thinking about the things that God has been prompting you to lately, and you may be trying to just process through, why haven't I been obeying that? For many of us, the, th- the very thing that keeps us from obeying God's prompting is in fact our idol. It is the thing that we love more than God's call on our lives. For a lot of us in this country, we bow. We bow at the idol of comfort. We bow at the idol of money, maybe it's success, maybe it's pleasure. But if you're really going to obey what God is prompting you to do, in many different places in your life, you're going to have to burn the plow. That sin that just feels so hard, you're going to have to burn it. Maybe it's that relationship that is so toxic, but it's just, it's going to have to end. Right? Maybe it's that job that's pulling you away from Christ. You got to go. Burn the plows. I know maybe you're making a lot of money in it. It's pulling you away from Christ. You burn the plow. If it's not where your calling is supposed to be, you burn the plow. You burn whatever gets in the way of you being obedient to the Lord. The great Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, if you love anything better than God, you are idolaters. If there is anything you would not give up for God, it is your idol. If there is anything that you seek with greater fervor than you seek the glory of God, that is your idol. Burn the plows. Many of you in this room have good, comfortable lives by American standards. And I want to tell you today as your pastor that your good life, for many of you, is actually your greatest enemy. Here's what I mean by that. You've got a, you've got a good life. You've got a good house in the suburbs, nice job, good family, couple of kids, to the watching world, you say the average person in Minnesota, they look at you and they say, slightly above average. Good work. You have basically everything you need. But in reality, for many of you, your life is making no difference in eternity. In fact, right now, you're not even doing what God is prompting you to do. Many of you in this room, you've been processing through this message and you're going, I don't even know what he wants me to do. Many of us haven't even asked God what he wants us to do. I'm going to try and say this gently, but I need to say it truthfully to you too. This is a hard word. But I want you to understand that God, despite which you might give lip service to, God is not the center of your universe if you haven't even sought him yet on what he wants you to do. For so many of us in this country, the very reason that we don't know our calling or we don't obey our calling is precisely because our lives to a watching world look good and they're comfortable. And so we feel no pressure to change them. But Christian, do not find comfort in the arms of this world. 
In fact, I'm going to pray something over you this week. I am going to pray that until you walk in obedience to God, that the comfort of this world feels like thorns to you. And I pray that because the things of this world are just idols. And I pray that because none of the things of this world will ever compare to the calling that your God has for you. And that's what I want for you. This is why Jesus in the Gospels, Luke 14, 26, he makes this really provocative statement. And he says, whoever does not hate their father and mother cannot be my disciple. Now, he's using hyperbole to make a point. He doesn't actually want you to hate your mom, okay? But what he's saying is, if you're actually going to be my disciple, I got to be the center of everything. I am first in everything. And everything else revolves around that. You know what else he's saying? He's saying, my friend, if you truly understood me, I'm so much more than just a set of moral rules about loving your neighbor, and I'm so much more than that. If you truly understood me, if you understood my glory, if you understood the depth of my love for you, everything else in your life would just absolutely pale in comparison, and you would revolve your whole life around me in an instant if you caught even just a second of my real glory. So we need to burn the plows. We've got to burn the idols in our lives because A, if we don't, we're just going to come back to them. And B, because they do not compare to what God has for you if you would trust him, even though it's scary. You don't think it was scary for Elisha to go back and burn everything down? But that was the most terrifying thing he ever did. But he knew God was calling. You know, I think of one of the things that really jumps out when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of the Bible for the first time, when Jesus is calling his disciples, a whole bunch of them are fishermen. And what do they do when Jesus calls? What do they do like with their nets? They drop them, literally, right? They just say, they're in the middle of fishing. And they drop their nets and they go up and follow Jesus. They don't run a risk assessment. They don't make a pros and cons chart. They don't take two weeks to think about it. They drop their nets, and they run after Jesus. Why? Because when Jesus calls you, nothing is better than that. Nothing. You burn the plows, because his call is greater. You burn the plows. It's probably not easier, but it is greater And it is better. The king of kings is calling you, my friend. Let that be enough. God wants to use you. I am not just talking to the person next to you. I am talking to you. God wants to use you. He's prompting you to something. He has plans for you. And this is what's so great about the New Testament, about being a Christian. As a Christian, the Bible's teaching that you have not been given the cloak of Elijah. No, no, no. It is better. You have been giving the cloak of God. Okay, this is Acts chapter 1 in the New Testament. God has put on you as a Christian, not the cloak of Elijah, but better, the cloak of the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Christ follower. And you now are being sent out as his apprentice, as his witness to all things. Burn the plows. Burn the plows and go. And for some of you in this room, I think this is really important to just process through if you've been coming here the last couple months and you're really just sitting on the fence about this Jesus thing. And people are saying, oh, you gotta come to this church. You gotta hear about Jesus. And you've kind of been coming, but you wouldn't necessarily call yourself a follower of Jesus. 
If you're going to make a decision to say, I want to become a follower of Jesus, you've got to go in it, eyes wide open. You can't say, oh, I, I want his forgiveness, and then three days later, go back to your old life. To become a follower of Jesus is to burn the plows on your old life. There is no going back. It's kind of like the old hymn, I have decided. Many of you have never seen this before, but I will read it to you. It says this, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back. No turning back. Why would you ever make a decision like that? It feels like you're the only one going. None of your friends are going. It's harder. You're leaving your old life behind. Why would you ever make that decision? Because Jesus is infinitely greater than anything you have in your life right now. Jesus in the New Testament tells a story, a parable, about a man who's out in a field. And in the field, he discovers a treasure. So he goes back and he sells his entire life savings to buy that field. And people will go, are you nuts? Why are you selling your whole life to just buy a field? But he knows that that treasure in his field is worth a million times more than his life savings. And that is what you're getting when you're going after Jesus. People might look at you and say, are you nuts? that you would decide to follow Jesus Christ. And you can look back and say, I am absolutely sane, my friend, because this is infinitely greater. The Son of God came to earth and died on a cross, knowing all of your sins. He died in your place, taking the punishment for your sins. And the Bible teaches, if you would only believe in him, if you would say, I believe that you died in my place, And you would say, I want to become a follower of you, to let you be the center of my life. That he would wash away everything you've ever done. You would be forgiven. You can have a relationship with him and spend eternity with him in heaven. That is far greater, far greater. Let me pray. Lord, teach us to burn the plows wherever we are. No matter how scary it is, no matter how hard it looks, May we burn them, Father. As I'm praying, if you want to ask God to forgive you of your sin, to leave your old life behind, and to become a follower of Jesus today, it's a decision you shouldn't take lightly. But if you know that God is just, you just feel it in your heart right now, and He's saying, you, It's time to follow. It's time to leave that old life behind. It's time to let me forgive you and come into your life. If you want to be forgiven and you want to be a follower of Jesus to make that decision for the first time, would you just raise your hand where you're at right now just as a way to say, yeah, that's me today. I need to be forgiven. I need to become a follower of Jesus. Would you just boldly raise your hand wherever you are and just keep it up? Just raise your hand up if you need to make that decision today to be forgiven. Let me give you about 10 seconds or so. Anyone in here that just needs to say, yeah, I need Jesus today. I need to be forgiven. I've got to leave that old life behind. Would you just raise your hand up to him?
I encourage you to just keep seeking him out. He is so good. Let me just pray, and then we have a couple of announcements and a song of worship. Lord, I pray over Renovation Church that we would be a burn-the-plows type of church, a church that puts you first, a church that revolves around you, a church that kind of looks crazy to the world sometimes because we would burn up everything else to follow you because we know that we know that we know that you are infinitely greater, God. Show us your glory. Show us how much greater you really are. Sometimes I think we just don't understand it, God. We're so busy in our world. Show us your infinite worth so that we may burn the plows to follow you. We just love you so much and we thank you for your love for us. In your name we pray, amen.